Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Back in the late 1960s, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang made it to the motion picture screen. It was originally a book written by Ian Fleming, adapted for the screen by Roald Dahl. It found its way to the London West End a couple of years back, and just a couple of weeks ago flew across the Atlantic Ocean, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang the car, and all of its occupants landed here in New York on 42nd Street at the Hilton Theater. With us today, Caractacus Potts himself, <laughs> Raul Esparza, actually, the actor who plays that role. Raul has been in a number of different shows. You may have seen him in Boy George's Taboo. You may have seen him as the MC in the Roundabout uh, Theater Company's production of Cabaret at Studio 54, or George in Sunday in the Park with George, maybe even in Tick, Tick, Boom or the Rocky Horror Show. Welcome, Raul. Hello. It's good to be here. Raul, listening to that list, i got to ask you immediately, um, Cabaret, Rocky Horror, The Normal Heart, uh-huh. Comedians... Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? <laughs> it's exactly because of the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang question that I, that I thought it would be interesting to do because um, we, what we – I was, I was thinking while I was doing Normal Heart, I said the next thing I want to do, I want it to have some joy to it. I want it to be something where I, I don't leave the theater devastated and no one's dying of AIDS. It's mm. just I've done so many dark pieces and I had never tried anything like this before. And I thought it would be a real challenge for me to try. I'm just naturally drawn to darker, more complex uh, type of writing. And um, this is a, a real old-fashioned Broadway show in that sense. Although it's an adaptation of a film, it feels like an old vaudeville piece because there are so many different kinds of things happening on stage. And I thought it'd be fun to try it. I really did. And that is quite the antithesis of dark. It is so bright and colorful yes. and bouncy exactly. and cheerful. It is. I mean, it, it's ultimately, you know, the biggest surprise for me has been that ultimately it is a much smaller show in its heart than I thought. It, it, it is a very big show in terms of set and spectacle and things mm-hmm. that happen on stage. But its heart is really just about this family, this very tiny situation where a family is broken, a mother is dead, a father is trying to take care of his kids and he can't very well. But he adores them. And the entire story of the show is about this father trying to prove to his kids that he loves them. And that's – we have found ourselves sort of falling into this wonderful energy on stage, Phil Bosco and I and Aaron Dilley, where we're – and even the kids, where we're all just kind of talking to each other. And then you do this bright sort of wonderful Sherman Brothers number. And that's its core. It's very, very gentle and very lovely and very simple. It's a beautiful show. It's a warm show. And I'm quite surprised Yet it's a big machine. That. And yet it's an enormous sort of – spectacular show with giant technological things that need to happen at a particular point on stage. Um, I didn't think that that would allow us to have the kind of quiet intimacy or or gentle scene playing that we have. Um, And again, it's not the kind of show that I've ever been associated with, so it's been a real learning experience for me. So is the process different for you going into a show like this as opposed to some of the more serious work? Um, in this case, it was – I got really interested in American vaudeville. I, I, try, I try to find a sort of hook into the idea of why I'm going to get on stage or what I want to do with it. And I got very interested in, in American vaudeville and sort of uh, song and dance men and the way that, that people work when they're just delivering a show in terms of song and dance. In that sense, it was really more about performance than it had to do with acting. There are little wonderful moments of acting because if you don't care about this guy, you don't care about the family, you don't see a human being on stage, you're not going to care about the car flying. It could fly all over the theater and the audience could care less if we're not connecting with them as people and they don't care about us as a family. It's the family that wants to fly, you know, not, not, the, not so much the machinery. But the difference between seeing a car fly in a film and seeing a car fly on stage is really thrilling. 
because you just don't know how they do that. And you're seeing it happen live in front of you. And you, and you, you, you can't imagine the response we get from these audiences. They just scream and scream. I mean, they actually are sitting there screaming. As the curtain comes down, you get this roar from the kids and their parents <laughs> out there. And, and it's, it's extraordinary because they've just seen something that seems impossible, but they just saw it right in front of their eyes. Well, actually, the way I look at it, the car can fly because the family loves the car. And, Entirely. And treats the car as though it's a member of the family. Entirely. And, and praises it. I've told, I've told this story before, but Ian Fleming actually wrote wrote the novel of this. It's a little short Which story. is very different than this story. It's very different. This story is actually follows the film very closely, which was adapted by uh, Cubby Broccoli um, for the screen. Uh, he had Roald Dahl write, write, I think, most of the second half of the film. And it has a real sort of Roald Dahl, James and the Giant Peach insanity going on in the, in the second and half. And, of course, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yeah, it's is complete, Roald Dahl. Yeah, it's a complete sort of madness with these evil child catcher. And, but Ian Fleming and Roald Dahl are both coming from the same world, which is World War, post-World War II England and the idea that an absolute evil can come into your home or just cross the channel and, and destroy you. So the kids – and Roald Dahl was very clear about it. The kids being taken away by the child catcher are – the child catcher is the Gestapo. The kids are the Jews. The Bulgaria is Germany. The Baron and the Baroness are the Nazis, and the English are coming to you know fight off the enemy. Uh, what Ian Fleming wrote was a story that he wrote for his son because his son said to him, "Daddy, you love James Bond more than you love me," and he said, "No, that's not true." Mm-hmm. And so he wrote this. I don't think I don't think he was alive when it was published. I think he died before. But it was the published. original story actually was sort of a children's spy story. It's a children's spy story. They they buy this car. It's sort of strange. The whole family decides to buy it. Right. He didn't invent. He it. didn't invent it. I mean, he worked on it. Yeah. He well, fixed it, it. It was it was a jalopy when he yeah, bought it. So yeah. It's a ruin, and he just. But he keeps saying there's something about this car, this strange car, and then the car takes them over the channel, and they go to France, and they fight off gangsters in a cave, and then they fight off gangsters in Paris. <laughs> And there's a there's a candy factory sort of involved at one point where he sells some candy, or, and then there's a, a fudge shop in Paris that they that they protect from gangsters. But it's an entirely different kind of story. This is more of a boys on adventure story, in in Act Two of our of our story. And I think it's it's a lot of fun. One of the best things that they've done in adapting the film to the stage is that they have uh, worked on the structure very well. So that because in the movie the um, the villains are just a story that the father tells. But in the stage version, it's all real. They're real. Mm-hmm. And you begin with the villains coming for the car. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> the first act is a much happier time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's creating the car. He's creating other inventions, this candy invention that he's made mm-hmm. and all that. You see the villains. You know that something's going to happen with the villains. They're lurking about. But it doesn't really happen until the second act, which is much darker. Yes. So uh, and at the end of the first act, without giving anything away, is kind of a cliffhanger leading into but the second. But exactly the idea. And yeah, the Sherman exactly. Brothers said, we, we want to end, when they said they're putting together the film, they said, we want to end with a cliffhanger. And they literally ended with a cliffhanger. Right, right. You know? <laughs> now, now, we should point out, we keep referring to the Sherman Brothers. And the Sherman Brothers, of course, wrote the songs for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, they were also the songwriters for Mary Poppins. For Mary Poppins so in they, terms of the, it, you know, they're, they're suddenly having this stage, it can't say it's a stage renaissance because they weren't writers for the stage. Right. They were always film score writers. Suddenly their work is being done on stage and uh, I, uh, I, they're thrilled. I mean, they're, they're two extraordinary men who are a part of my own history in, ter- in that I grew up in Florida and we used to go to Disney World every year once it opened. And when the overture begins for this show, uh, I get tears in my eyes. Because I really feel like I'm going to the Magic Kingdom. This isn't a Disney show, but it, but their music transports me back to 
to that world that and I was growing up in. What's been their involvement? Are they present now as you're rehearsing? They've been around quite. They were around a great deal at the beginning of rehearsals, and then they went away. And then they came back when we got back into the theater for uh, previews. And I'm sure they'll come back uh, in uh, in a few weeks as we get closer to to the opening. Had, had you seen the London version? I did see the London version. How does this version compare to London? Have there I think been it's any more beautiful here. In, it in looks better. Of... I think the designers were able to do more. Anthony Ward was able to do more of what he wanted in terms of what his dreams were for the London stage. The costumes are indescribably gorgeous and I can't even express how much detail there is on stage that I don't even think the audience will ever see. It's – uh, the way that he's using certain colors, the dioramas that he's using on stage, the certain kinds of effects that he's able to do here, the flight of the car itself, it's all so much uh, bigger and grander and more detailed than it was in London. So I think what they wanted to do for Broadway was create the template for what they always dreamt the show could be. And mm-hmm. they've cast it with extraordinary theatrical talent. Well, that's what's, that's what's remarkable that, because for people who might, again, say as I said at the beginning, chitty chitty bang bang, um, the cast is not bland, just standard musical comedy actors. They went out of their way to find people like yourself and Phil yeah, Bosco. Phil Bosco, who I don't think had done a musical in years you know, and years. Jan I mean, Maxwell. <laughs> yeah. Um, Really, who's really uproarious in this show? Well, <laughs> Phil Bosco was on Downstage Center a couple months ago when uh-huh. he was in Twelve Angry Men, uh, which is playing right next door to where you're yes. playing now. And he made a comment to the effect that I'm not a singer; I, I don't sing. <laughs> and he was he, he was a little bit nervous about you having to be in a musical. He's so charming. His, he his, pulls it off. His, great. Yes, his his inability is is glorious. Actually, yeah, yeah. that he's not trying to deliver a song; he's just sort of. Incredibly gentle and endearing, and the audience mm. loves him so much. And for me, it's it is working with theatrical royalty. For, for me to share the stage with Phil, it was one of the things that most drew me to the idea of being in the project. Was the kind of people they put together um, to be on stage. I, I you know, for myself, it's I, I've always uh, said that it's hard for me sometimes to get through a matinee of a show. And any show that you're doing, you get to the matinee and you're so tired and you think, oh, my God, I have to go out there. And for years, I would actually get myself through the matinee by saying, well, maybe there's some kid out there who's going to be like I was, who saw a matinee of Peter Pan in Miami Beach with Sandy Duncan. And my grandmother took me to it and she flew out over my head in the third row. And I've never forgotten it. Mm. I've never forgotten it. it. I don't know if that's what made me want to be an actor, but I've simply never forgotten it. And I would hang on to that memory of seeing that. Or I think I saw a matinee of Sweet Charity when I was 15 and it was the last thing that Fosse directed and we were in San Francisco. And, and I remember B.B. Newworth. And I'm, she was playing – I didn't even know who she was. Mm-hmm. I just you know, I just said that. What is that? What are they doing? I want to do that. Uh, so when I have difficulty getting through the matinee, I think maybe there's some kid out there who's never seen a show before who will be like me and whose life will change. So I better give this 200 percent. And with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, every single performance, there's somebody out there who's never seen a show Oh, there's before. a lot of kids. I, yeah. I was there on a Tuesday evening. I was surprised at how many kids. Yeah, it's great. But it's also a lot of parents are coming to uh, to introduce their kids to something that they love. And I've even seen adults come without kids and because it turns out it's like their favorite film, you know, growing up. And <laughs> they, they cheer the car on or it's one of their favorite memories. And there's a lot to be said for the theater being a space of such unmitigated joy. It really is wonderful. Well, I, I saw many adults there without children mm-hmm. uh, and many adults laughing their heads off. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of great sight gags, a lot yeah. of physical humor as well as it's quite, verbal. It's quite yeah. clever. It's a witty show. It's not a, you know, a drag-out, brilliant uh, 
um, farce or anything like that. It's just it's, – it's a witty show and it has such loving sort of attention to the detail of, of the English family and the English countryside and what's happening in terms of the, of the story but also the elements in the set that people are I think are enjoying all the little extra things that you get to pick up. You know. it, it must be very crowded backstage. The sets is, are so it's huge. It's massive. And there are so many sets. Where it's, do you put all that lumber? Everything hangs in the air above us. <laughs> now, I've got to ask you, um, in one of the interviews I read with you in preparing to talk to you today, um, there's a comment you said that I knew that I could sing and people responded, but I didn't really listen to musicals growing up. I was 16 when I first heard a musical. Now, you've just given the lie to that. Oh, I guess I must have been fi- uh, 16 when I, when I heard Sweet Charity. I was 15, 16 years old when my parents bought tickets uh, to... The story is changing because here you're mentioning <laughs> how to succeed in business when you were in high school. I was in high school doing how to succeed in business. When you were busy when listening to Van Halen, the Led Zeppelin, and the mm-hmm. police. We moved to California. My parents had uh, – by this, by this time, I was actually acting. And uh, it's not something that I, I didn't own any musicals to listen to. And uh, when we moved out to California, I had a girlfriend who used to play Evita in the car. She had a, like a Volkswagen – Beetle, I think it was. Not one of the disco versions. No, no. She no. played Evita. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is that? And she's like, oh, it's this musical. You know, it's about the life of Ava Perone. I remember her talking about like, one day, you know, I'll play Ava and you could play Che. And my high school in Miami didn't really have or my junior high didn't really have a theater department of any kind. But um, I had a Spanish teacher who was incredibly influential in my life who would stage plays. And, um, and I started doing plays in Spanish. In, in, in Florida? In Florida, in Miami, in my high school. Uh-huh. And uh, so I'd never done a musical of any kind. And I had seen as a little kid when we went to uh, to the whatever the season was at the Jackie Gleason. It's not wasn't called the Jackie Gleason then, but the Theater of the Performing Arts in Miami. I think it, we had seen Carousel and uh, and Peter Pan, but musicals didn't seem to be related to what we were doing in in my elementary school or my high school or my or my junior high. There, you just got up and said some lines in Spanish from some play you were reading. It wasn't until I got to California and this girlfriend playing her musicals and my parents getting us uh, season tickets when I was 15 and 16 to go see shows at the, uh, I think it was the Golden Gate and the Orpheum. Hmm. And a part of that season was Cats. And I, I remember Zorba, and my one and only, and, uh, and uh, uh, Sweet Charity. But my eyes opened up to musicals because that high school in California did two shows. They did Plaza Suite, which was one of the very first plays I ever saw. Hmm. And I remember I was a little kid and I saw this play. It was on TV. It was like a videotape of a play. And I said, I, I, I want to make people laugh like that. And then the high school was doing it out there in California and I ended up doing, you know, whatever the third act was of Plaza Suite, the famous scene where the girl gets locked in the bathroom. And then the second half of the school year, they did a musical. They did How to Succeed in Business. And, um, that was the first time I ever even auditioned for for a musical. I played Bud Frump, mm-hmm. and um, my eyes were opened into the idea of being able to perform in a musical. And then I went back from California back to my high school in Miami. Actually, we moved again, uh-huh. and so that was it. You know, there was a community theater I worked with a little while in Miami, but uh, I grew up, as I say, listening mostly to, to rock and roll, to U two and and and. Uh, and Van Halen and the police. So I didn't equate the kind of singing that I grew up with to the sort of stuff that I was seeing on stage in San Francisco or down in Miami Beach and certainly not to what we were doing in that, in that high school. And my high school in Miami didn't have the, the ability to produce a musical. So it became uh, – I thought I'd be an actor but I didn't necessarily think I would be um, the singing in shows professionally. They seemed totally unrelated to me. And then but how did you end up in Chicago? I doing... moved to Chicago because I had a teacher. Uh, his name was uh, David Bucknam uh, who 
was a composer and a teacher at Playwrights Horizons who uh, had gone out to Chicago. So had you come to New York first? I had and come then... here mm-hmm. to NYU, uh, to the Tisch School of the Arts, and uh, studied at Playwrights Horizons. And you're at that age when you're 18 and you're not really sure what you want to do with your life. And I was doing a double major with theater and English and a psychology minor, and I thought I was going to go to law school. Mm. Everybody in my family is an engineer. And my father's an engineer. My grandfather's a chemical engineer. My, my uncle's a mechanical engineer. Um, and uh, there was this sort of pressure on me to uh, to do something a little more substantial with my life than, than go into acting. Did your parents give you the line of, you know, do the acting thing but have a real profession to fall Actually, back Actually, the pressure on. was happening more from my grandfather oh, yeah. and from other people in the family. My mom and my dad, surprisingly, started to really encourage me to go into theater um, because I was working professionally right out of – High school. Really? I got my first job at the Coconut Grove Playhouse when I was 18, I think, 17, 18. It was a Cuban version of Tartuffe <laughs> called Mixed Blessings that was written by Luis Santero who writes for Sesame Street. And he did a, a sitcom, a bilingual sitcom called Que Pasa USA that I grew up watching. <laughs> and Luisito had done this adaptation of Tartuffe set in Miami. It was a big success for the Grove. And they didn't generally hire local actors. And I got hired to do this from a reading I had done for them. And suddenly I was working in the theater. I, I, was, I was a presidential scholar in the arts my senior year in high school in 1988. They choose 20 kids to be presidential scholars in the arts out of 6,000 who apply. And when I went to the arts competition, which happens to be held in Miami, I was told that I would never make it in the theater and that I wasn't enough of an actor and that maybe I'd be a director, which is quite a slam on most of my director <laughs> friends. They told you this at the audition? They told me this at the actual competition itself. The, who, is, uh, who, who is that? The judges. Yeah, the judges. But, but yet you got it. I had been selected. Mm-hmm. I had been selected out of out of the six thousand. I had been selected to come compete among twenty people oh. to, to, for these scholarships, and you get different levels of scholarship. But I didn't mm-hmm. get anything. Uh, okay. They decided at the end of the week that I wasn't going to get anything. <laughs> that I was not going to be enough of an actor, and I certainly hadn't been put through the ringer in terms of drama school, and I wasn't going to make it. And I, I was violently depressed. And I had done a lot of uh, community service work through my high school, doing work in the theater in Miami. And we would stage these these plays in my high school and we would give the proceeds to different uh, shelters and different things around. And I had won an award in Miami called the Silver Knight Award, which was for community service to the city of Miami presented by Miami Herald for my work in the theater. But here the presidential scholars people said, no, you, you, you get an honorable mention and, and, and you're out. I had also taken first place in the country, I think, doing some scenes from Amadeus uh, in uh, in the Forensics League, uh, mm-hmm. you know, speech and debate stuff. And – I was truly depressed and I thought this is not – I can't do this with my life. And then suddenly I was seeing people getting accepted to theater schools who I didn't think were particularly talented and I got very competitive. <laughs> and I went and auditioned for NYU like – because this girl got accepted and I said, well, if she can get in, I, I can get into NYU. You know? And well, maybe I, maybe I can do this. And then I got, started, got a job to, to work professionally the summer before I went to school and suddenly my parents were saying, you know what? Uh, try this. I think maybe because they lost so much when they left Cuba, I think that they felt like life's too short. You may as well do mm-hmm. what you love first because they had to make choices that had nothing to do with what they love. 
in this competition, this scholarship competition, that you got nothing. Yeah. W- without naming names, the ones who won it, any of them ever go on to um, fame and fortune on, on the stage? I don't know, you know any of their names, no. Yeah. <laughs> more importantly, more importantly, where are those judges now? Yeah. yeah. And I, I know where a few of them see are, See if any actually. of them come backstage uh, at any of your shows. I know where a few of them are. So you went to NYU. I went to NYU. And, and then you said from there went out to Chicago. Then I had this teacher who went out to Chicago. Um, I had, they were working on a show at the um, at the Goodman called Riverview at the time, which was directed by uh, oh, um, Bob Falls. And uh, had a young Marin Maisie in it. <laughs> I remember that. I went out to see the shows. My friend was musical directing. And uh, and there was an audition happening at the Remains Theater. The Remains Theater was run by, by uh, a man named Larry Sloan at the time, who has since died. And he was looking to do a production of, of The I Sing. And it was not a theater known for doing musicals at all. And they didn't want anyone who had ever really done musicals. And so I auditioned for this, and I got hired for $100 a week to play this comp- incredibly twisted version of a French soldier in a, in a Gershwin musical. None of us really knew how to tap. None of us knew how to deliver this material. The show just <laughs> collapsed on itself. It was, it was, com- it was the anti-musical. It's <laughs> just, just absolutely <laughs> terrible. And, uh, but I fell in love with Chicago, and I decided to stay. Then how did you cut from Chicago to New York? What, what, what brought you to New York to, to work? I waited to come here a long time. I stayed in Chicago working. I got my... Um, my equity card at the Goodman Theater, and I and I got a lot of experience there, directed by Frank Galati, and I got to work with Steppenwolf, and which to me is is the the absolute pinnacle of, of American theater. I my first show with Steppenwolf, this uh, a woman named Ellen Flack, who is a an agent, who had an office here in New York at the time, representing her set designer, came to see the opening of the show at, at Steppenwolf, and called me the next day, to say that would I like to come to New York. And, uh, and I said no. <laughs> mm. And actually, uh, she waited about three years, she and her partner, Bob Duva. I remember calling Equity and saying, oh, there's this agent and they're interested in me. I think they're a small office. Would you check on their client list? And their client list was something like Mercedes Rule and Patti LuPone and Boyd mm-hmm. Gaines and, mm-hmm. and just like – and they were at Michael Emerson. And, you, and yet you still waited and three years. I still waited and they waited with me. They kept – I would come in and I would audition for things. An interesting thing happens here in New York. I was afraid of coming here. I was afraid because I thought – I'd come here and I would and I would not get hired. I was afraid of the quality of life that you can have in New York. In Chicago, you can pay your rent. You don't have to make a lot of money. You can live incredibly well. And I was doing a lot of new work and getting hired to do new plays at Victory Gardens or Steppenwolf or Goodman. And the opportunity to create roles that I know I would not have had at 20, 21 here in New York. You'll never become a major star in Chicago. But you'll work regularly, and the work ethic is extraordinary. I was afraid to come here and not be able to earn enough to make a living or live the way that I like to live, and afraid that I would just be drowned in a sea of of struggling actors here. Um, Their faith in me was extraordinary. Ellen Flack, in particular, she's now my manager. And and they waited because they were always sort of encouraging me to take the next interesting project. I got to do things like Arcadia. And I played Septimus out there before. And she had to set me up for a pilot season. And I said, well, I got hired to play Septimus in Arcadia out here. And she said, stay. You need to do the Tom Stoppard. That's more important. So there was a sense of caring about me as an individual. The other thing that happened was two extraordinary casting directors just simply decided that they believed in me. And that was Bernie Telsey and Tara Rubin. And they kept seeing me for things here, even though I wasn't getting cast. And that's really one of the keys to the process now is that a casting director sees you over and over and over and over. So every audition counts in a way. 
because they get to see you do different kinds of work, even if you don't get the job. And you're making an impression on them yes. that they can keep in the back of their minds yes. for the future. So. You, so Bernie's belief in me, he would just keep calling me in from things from Chicago. And uh, in part, uh, one of the things that happened was that Evita came up. And I came in to audition for Evita and was put through seven auditions. This was for a tour. For a national tour. Yeah. And I... Uh, that really kicked my ass. That was that was really the hardest. I for a guy who said that uh, that musicals seemed easy and I'd rather be doing plays. Boy, was I wrong! <laughs> my God, that is one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. And you had to turn <laughs> down playing Hamlet to do that. Yes, there was a the guy who had directed me in Arcadia wanted me to do Hamlet that summer. And isn't it interesting that you ended up playing Che? I presume che. Vita, when you were talking about your girlfriend. You, you know were something? School, Opening night, San Francisco party. Orpheum Theater. Sitting in the mezzanine, uh, I, the, where we had been sitting in the mezzanine, uh, opening night in San Francisco at the Orpheum Theater, I was playing Che, and my ex-girlfriend from that time was in the audience mm-hmm. seeing me in the show, and she'd never seen the show before. Did she ever end up on stage herself? Uh, no. No, she didn't go Too into bad. the theater. And, uh, but it was an incredibly moving night for me. Must have been. And Che is a, a, a spectacular role, and you have to learn on your feet, and I had to learn very fast how to sing better, how to move better. And how to maintain a show eight times a week. It was a fast and furious education. It is a flawless piece of staging. That, that play. I don't think people remember how glorious Evita is. And one of the things that happened was that it gave me confidence because as you're going around the country and if they're liking you in different cities, I don't know what the consensus is. I try not to read too many reviews. At the time, I was reading some. Sometimes they hate you. Sometimes they like you. But the sense was that I was getting really good reviews around the country. So I thought, well, if they like me all over the country, maybe I'll be okay going to New York. <laughs> And then Bernie was casting. Um, Bernie was casting Rocky Horror. Um, the following year, that was uh, Evita ended in 1999, and Bernie was casting Rocky Horror the summer of 2000. And I kept turning down the audition until my wife said, How come? Uh, I d- "My wife said, why are you doing this?" And I said, uh, I-, "I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not wait, interested were in you, Rocky Horror." Were you afraid? Yeah, that's exactly what, what it was. I was afraid. I had been on. That was when I was finally trying to come here and I had been on so many auditions where I was told I was talented or too talented for the part they wanted to hire me for or, or yeah, you know, you'll get there eventually and I just couldn't bear another rejection at the time and I, and I didn't realize that, that I, I was afraid. I was afraid of, of the show. Were you afraid of being in New York on a Broadway mm-hmm. stage or afraid of that particular show? I was show. afraid of that particular show. So had it been I a different af- show? Had, you, had you been one of those Rocky Horror people in your youth? I only saw it once and it freaked me out. I saw yeah. the movie once when I was a teenager and uh-huh. I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't get it. Um, and when my wife said that, she said, you're just afraid. If you're afraid, then you need to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I did. So that, so the first time you stepped on, on the stage, on a Broadway stage, were you still afraid at that point? Or how did you feel stepping out there? I, w- I remember most vividly the first dress rehearsal, the, the final dress rehearsal, sorry, for Rocky Horror. It was like a, a rock concert. Rocky's not a typical Broadway experience at all. Because we were in Circle in the Square, it felt like we were at some sort of happening. And um, you're singing rock and roll. You're not, you're not mm. singing show tunes. I mean, Rocky Horror, in fact, the, original, the stage show here in New York failed miserably yeah. its first time out. It's only because of the film that, yep. that it developed the recognition that it so, now has. It didn't feel like I was on Broadway. It felt mm. like I was doing this crazy rock concert. The cast of that show, we're all still friends. And that's a rare thing because you go from job to job so quickly. But that cast was composed of some of the greatest people I've ever worked with and people who have absolutely no ego. Like people like Jared Emick and Alice Ripley and Tom Hewitt and Daphne Rubin Vega and Leah Delaria who I could not have gotten through 
through the show without uh, when we first connected Leah and I was to do uh, Broadway on Broadway where they had me stand up in front of however many thousand people stand on Broadway and Times Square mm-hmm. and I sang Time Warp mm-hmm. you know and uh, nobody had ever heard me I was that guy who is that guy uh, sing Leah was the only one who ever heard me that day and I was standing terrified at the bottom of the stairs and she said go up there go up there and hit it come on you can do this and then she did she got my back and, and I launched into Time Warp that day in Times Square and people were just screaming and, and uh, <laughs> without her I wouldn't have had the, the, the confidence to sort of jump up on the stage well this is kind of a, a good segue into, into playing that because we cannot hear you in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang unless we go to the theater <laughs> to hear you since it has not been recorded we only yes. have the London version not yet but we can certainly hear you in Rocky Horror Show so why don't we play Time Warp and hear me screaming and hear you screaming <laughs> from the Rocky Horror Show Raul Esparza with Time Warp. How long were you in that show? I did about six months. Uh huh. And um, and then I was asked to uh, audition for a, a Jonathan Larson piece called Tick Tick Boom. And I was hesitant to leave a Broadway show for an off Broadway show, but a couple of things happened. Daphne Rubin Vega, who was playing my sister in Rocky Horror and who was so incredibly close to John, said, "Baby, you need to do this. Go do this." Nobody could do this but you. Go do this. And I heard the material and I read through it. I was reading it through on the phone to my wife, actually. And I started crying while I was reading it, just sobbing. And and, and I was like, I have, to, I have to do this. Just reading it to someone made me so emotional. And actually, it was uh, the best decision I could have made. I loved doing Rocky Horror. It was fun to do. And those people were great. But getting to go and do Tick, Tick, Boom was one of, is one of my proudest experiences on stage. It was such a tiny show, but it spoke to so many people. And a show with a lot of expectations, given, of course, that Jonathan Larson had passed away yes. several years earlier, yeah. but the phenomenal success of Rent. And- there was the attachment to Rent. There was the fact that his parents were – his father, Al, was in the room every single day in rehearsals because this wasn't a play to him. It was his son's life. Mm-hmm. John had written five different versions of Tick, Tick, Boom and done them himself as a one-man piece at New York Theatre Workshop, at the Village Vanguard, different places. So David Auburn was collecting these into one script that could be played. And there are elements of John's script that we could not use. Because he kept talking about how he was going to die. He felt like he was going to explode. His heart was going to burst. He's, he felt like his heart was going to explode. And, and he just – he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear it. And one of the producers said, well, that's what he wrote. We should use that. And David Auburn said, no, if you put that on stage, no one will believe us. The one thing we did keep that John wrote was uh, somebody gave him a copy of La Boheme. And he – and I always sort of tossed it off as a joke at the end of the show. When he was writing Tick, Tick, Boom, he didn't know he was headed for rent. He didn't know what he was headed for. Tick, Tick, Boom is a play very very near to my heart and it moves me very much because because it is a play about what happens when people tell you you're no good and how you can continue when everybody says you have no talent. It doesn't, you know, best of luck, but we're not going to support you. And it, and it spoke to so many people who were coming to see it in so many different kinds of walks of life. Because we've all been to that place in our life where we're like, who do I want to be when I grow up? And what do I, what do I need to say in the world? And if nobody believes in me, do I still have the confidence to stand on my own two feet and say this is who I am? And that, that show is entirely about John finding that voice for himself. It was a huge loss, a huge loss. And for- how was it you're, you're playing a real person surround – you know, you were – 
you were urged to do the show by someone who'd worked with him. You had his father in the room every day when you were rehearsing. You never knew him. I never knew him. I watched some footage of him. It's hard for me to talk about it. I'm sitting here trying to fight back tears, which is very strange. But it's uh, he was extra- he. I saw this footage of this man who was absolutely beloved by among his friends and uh, who never got to see what happened with Rent. And there were these kids who were coming as though I were him somehow. And there was a performance we did for the original cast of Rent. And uh, I didn't even know uh, Adam Pascal at the time. And he's since become a friend. But he just held me for three minutes crying in my arms. Um, it was this huge responsibility. I didn't try to play John so much as that he somehow played me. Because a lot of the script, I was finding myself saying things that I believed in myself. About politics, about art, about the theater, about what's happened to Broadway or what hasn't. About what I'd like to contribute to the world. And um, the really telling song for me in that show for him is the song called Why that he wrote uh, when, his, when his best friend told him that he had AIDS and he thought his friend was going to die. And uh, there's a scene where John goes to the Delacorte Theater and plays on the piano and he plays this song Why and he says over and over, what a great way to spend a day learning a song or writing a song and this is why. He never says this is why but he says this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to no matter what. And... Um, after September 11th, which happened in the midst of, of the show beginning to really pick up, um, we started doing performances again. And our album came out on September 11th and I kept receiving letters from people saying that they had gone to buy the album that morning. Or I even got an email from somebody who said that he'd been late to work at the Towers because he went to buy the album. Oh, wow. And I went to St. Patrick's that afternoon to light a candle. And there was a cop standing on the steps of St. Patrick's who turned to me and he said, you're in Tick, Tick, Boom. And he started singing a song from the show. He started singing uh, See Her Smile to me on the steps of St. Patrick's. And, uh, and then a few days later, we went back to work. And I thought, this is the stupidest thing. How can we be doing this? How can we be doing this? The, the, the city's burning. How can we do this? You can still smell it. And we were – some of us were going to volunteer af- after the theater every night. I was volunteering at Chelsea Piers. And there were those kids sitting in the front row. And the performance back, the second performance back, uh, the soundboard blew and just huge – it sounded like a bomb. Everybody screamed in the theater and I was playing the piano on the song Why. And I, I couldn't breathe. And I just pushed the piano away from me and the band took over and I just sat in the chair and sang it. And just tears streaming down my face looking at all these young kids looking up at me and the city's just been blown up around them. And I'm singing about you got to go on. I know things are bad but you got to go on. <laughs> This is why we do this. Amazing. <laughs> well, it seems the appropriate moment to play a song you've been mentioning too, which which I guess maybe play? why is probably the song you should play if you're going to play anything from that show because uh, that's John's credo. I sang it recently uh, uh, last year at a um, at an awards ceremony, and I've gotten a little too old for the song. It's become a bittersweet song for me now. At the time, it was just full of hope, but now it's a song that has a lot of pain in it. Um, I've gotten a little too old to play John now. <laughs> Our guest today on Downstage Center, Raul Esparza. That's why from Tick, Tick, Boom. It sounds to me as though, in a sense, from what you were saying, you kind of became the vehicle for Jonathan Larson, your voice, your body. He was basically posthumously expressing himself through you as the vehicle. Yeah, the Rent guys kept talking about that. They felt like I was the... Whatever, the 13th member of Rent. I don't know how many are in the cast, but they would all sort of laugh about it. Like, you're the honorary Rent member, you know. <laughs> and um, those are some very, very good people. And you went from that, 
you you had a couple of projects, but certainly then another major project for you was Taboo. Well, um, yeah, Taboo followed a few years later in terms of getting involved with Rosie O'Donnell. I had done um, Tick Tick Boom led to Cabaret because Assassins was canceled, which right. is what I was supposed to do. But uh, but before I got into Taboo, I I, uh, I started that association with Steve Sondheim, who was very supportive of Tick Tick Boom, and um, and lent a lot of of uh, support to Jonathan himself and that uh, that experience of getting to work with Steve and that's on the Sondheim musicals down at Kennedy Center that was at the Kennedy Center it all began with Assassins Assassin got cancelled it couldn't happen and then I ended up in Cabaret because I was out of a job and they needed an MC and that turned out to be glorious the New York Times came back to review us and it was glorious but that summer with uh, with Sondheim at the Kennedy Center <laughs> has been uh, we just did a, a concert for Steve last Monday for his for his birthday, you know, the seventh thousandth concert or something. He said he wants a Jerry Herman tribute next time because he's just tired, <laughs> tired of hearing his own I'm, damn I'm music. I'm sure Jerry would be very happy to have <laughs> But uh, um, Christine Bransky and I were talking, and we could say we are never going to get over that summer. It was just the most spectacular thing to be able to spend a summer doing Sunday in the Park with George and merrily roll along, and to walk down the hall and hear Stokes singing uh, Sweeney Todd, and then you turn the corner and Lynn Redgrave is rehearsing for Company, and. Wow. Um, while we're putting together Sunday and Cerverus is putting together with Passion with Judy King. It was all happening in the same space at the Kennedy Center. It was like floating in the, the summer camp that never was for theater enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. And the audience is coming down from New York on these trains for the weekend and seeing three shows in rep, you know. And uh, it's just – it defined me. The level of excellence of accomplishment and the extraordinary heights to which you were expected to ascend and to have an audience sitting there who wanted to be in the theater as much as you did every night. Oh, it's miraculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't think I'd ever – I know I don't think I'm ever going to match that in my life. It's one of those high points. Um, Taboo is a high point because of, of the drama desk and the, and the Tony nomination that came from it. And I, and I also do particularly love that score. Um, we, we, uh, we weren't a, a great success, but we were a bit of a cult hit. And uh, it, was a, um, it was a messy experience, unfortunately. Well, it was at a point in, in Rosie O'Donnell's personal life that was very rough for her. There's a lot of negative press going on. Yes, it was like living in a fishbowl. And, and Rosie, unfortunately, I don't know why uh, the press went after her with such vehemence. And I don't feel like anybody on Broadway wasn't supportive of her coming to Broadway because Lord knows she put her money where her mouth is. I really didn't feel that other than maybe Michael Riedel attacking us constantly. But that's his – that's the way he, he he plays his game. I understand that it's it's gossip and it's fun. You know, it's he's not. I don't think he's out to destroy anybody. It's just you got to have something to write in the gossip columns, and it's a lot of fun. Unfortunately, um, because of the internet and because of his writing and because of her publicity and because of the attention on us, we could not make mistakes in that show. Mm. Anything we did was in the paper the next day. Any tiny thing that would happen would blow up and become this huge article. I mean, some sort of a, a problem in the show. Anything, anything, anything. The, the scene was cut. People were writing about it online. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. What's wrong with Taboo this week? Uh, where is Raúl Esparza having dinner? What is Rosie thinking? Where did Charles Bush go? What happened to this? What did Boy George say? It was like being in a in a feeding frenzy, and therefore we weren't able to really. I think it's a show that would have benefited from an out of town tryout because we weren't really able to work on the show, and and yet. There was that score. George really wrote a, a score for for the musical theater, and I'm Wait, thrilled George, that he got George a Tony. Yeah, I'm thrilled he got a Tony nomination for it because it was, regardless of winning, it's or a losing, beautiful. Score. It's a beautiful score. It's a musical theater score. Yes, it's in a pop idiom, but he's writing about characters, and the character I got to play 
kicked back to the Rocky Horror idea for me and even more it kicked back to Steppenwolf which is a theater that teaches you to throw the spaghetti on the wall and see if it sticks whatever it is if it's not broken you know go out there and break it uh, anything you're afraid of that's what you should go check out and and the character was all about like, okay, I'm afraid of that. I may as well go try it. And the score is about people going to places where they're sort of frightened and admitting that they're frightened. It had a lot of a lot of potential. It was a real shame. And it is a show that that absolutely had its fans. Um, interestingly, when you did Rocky Horror, of course, now when anybody stages Rocky Horror, you get the people who are Rocky Horror buffs, and they're mm-hmm. coming because of their relationship to that film and other experiences of seeing the show and so on. But Taboo, in a fairly short period of time, had its groupies. Yes, it did, which is surprising to me. I think there were some people who saw it like 80 sometimes. I don't think we, I didn't know we ran that long. I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember coming down as the character. I'd come down to the front row and sort of look down at them and, and keep breaking the fourth wall and say... I'm sorry, Danny. So I thought you were, I thought you were here last night. <laughs> I seem to recall you actually at one point turning to somebody one of the times I saw it because uh, I saw it more than once, you know, and saying, oh, what, "What's my next what's line?" My next line? Yeah, you yeah. seem ready to do it. <laughs> yeah, because they they were there every night, all of them in the front row. I mean, God bless them for supporting us, but at the same time, it was a little, a little uh, crazy to to have that sort of devotion to a show so quickly. However, John Kander. And Gracie Danielle and Jules Fisher and Stephen Schwartz and Stephen Sondheim and uh, I think even uh, William Goldman was talking about how much they loved – John Guare, how much they loved Taboo. (laughs) These are people who actually called me to say I love that – you know. Go out to dinner with my friends, and uh, the, um, Johnny sat. uh, Johnny Kander sat in the dressing room talking to me for forty-five minutes about how much he loved the score. So it had something. It had something going for it, and these these fans couldn't have been all wrong, you know. So was it just (laughs) just the press that killed it? Do you think? Yes. We didn't get a chance. We just didn't get a chance. We didn't get a chance to, to fix it. We didn't get a chance to to work it. We we didn't get a chance before we even opened. I feel sometimes like uh, there are snap judgments made about shows before they've even opened, and you and you can't get past them. And you're going to a time of year when Broadway is traditionally very slow yeah. during during the winter. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so the the show suffered a little bit. Also, I think from its own um, publicity, in that in that Rosie was selling herself more than she was selling the show. But she didn't know any better. She was selling what she knew would bring people to see the show. If she is the most popular woman uh, on television for that many years and that loved by the American audience, why shouldn't she assume that her name will help bring people to the theater? Mm-hmm. We should hear a little of that wonderful score. What what of, of your work in that show do you think you should Well, definitely play? Petrified. It's, a, it's an absolute gift of a song. It has a... It's a it's a song that George wrote for his very best friend Philip Salon. It's the role that I played, and uh, Philip is uh, is the person who pretty much saved George's life. He began his career, and he ended up saving George's life in terms of getting him back on track. And uh, Philip was actually knifed in London, uh, defending George in the sort of gay bashing incident. And it is a song about about that moment where uh, someone who's been putting on all these kinds of masks throughout the show ends up dropping it and says. Uh, I'm just as frightened as you are, but when you look at me, I, you know, any any sort of hatred you have for me is only hatred you're directing at yourself. It's incredible to think that uh, George wrote this for his friend. To say something that naked about your friend is, well, it's painful. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to air my laundry that way. <laughs> but that's what the song does. Raul Esparza, a song from uh, Taboo Petrified. It's interesting when we started this conversation almost an hour ago. 
uh, Howard was asking about all the various shows you had been in. Then he said, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh-huh. And you said something to the effect of having been in all these dark shows, you wanted something a bit brighter like Chitty mm-hmm. Chitty Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. After hearing all these tales, I can understand fully why you would say that. It's hard for me to not take my work home with me. Uh-huh. I don't mean I live as the character. But acting is a strange process. It's it's a little bit of a delusion. You have to fool yourself into uh, – thinking like that character for a while and then and then you don't think like that character and whatever that character feels or thinks if you're doing a good job it influences your life a little bit i've never been more of a visionary than when i was trying to play george in sunday in the park with george i've never been more political than i was playing charlie in in merrily roll along i've never um been prouder to be a new yorker than when i was john in tick tick boom and i've never been so moved by an experience in the theater than than i was when when we were doing the normal heart in that I'd never done a play like that where the subject of the play and the people it was written for were the people that were also coming to see it. It's about the people who were watching it. It was just incredible. You would feel the audience join you. You would feel a moment where the whole theater would go, yes, we know. I've never had that happen. I think it can only happen with plays that are written for a specific time and place. This was a play for New Yorkers about New Yorkers. And um, – and but then that's hard to leave at the theater. <laughs> a play like that is – that kind of anger and jealousy and meanness and loss is hard to leave at the theater. Whereas Chitty affords a great deal of, of joy. I find my life uh, is, is a little more stable and particularly because of the kids in the show. The two children in the show, Ellen, Ellen Marlowe and Henry Hodges, the first time we sat in the car and it started to fly, they started to cry. Hmm. And she she'd never done a show professionally. In, in certainly not in New York. She's from Texas. Wow. She's 11 years old. And she's so good. And she's fantastic. And she, she said, I can't believe I'm in this. I can't believe I'm in this. And I looked at them and I thought, I have a responsibility to never let this be anything but magical for them. Mm-hmm. So when you see that through someone else's eyes, and I suppose every parent feels this. I'm not a parent yet, but boy, I can only imagine what it's like to love that someone that much because these kids are the center of my show. And when you see that through their eyes, you think, no matter what I feel... <laughs> It's tiny compared to how marvelous this experience is for these kids. And it's a privilege and an honor to do it. I think that's a very good note to end on. Yes. As Caracatus Potts, also as Raul Esparza. Thanks so much for being with us today, Thank Raul. you. Thank you both. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the media and education programs in the American Theatre Wing are available free, online, on demand from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.